This is the Wageningen University and Research Podcast. On today's show... CRISPR-Cas isn't just one thing. I think one of the key things is that it's more precise than previous methods that we've had. We have such complex grand societal challenges and science has the potential to come up with some innovative solutions for it. Just as we become very involved with corporates and, and industry, we should at the same time become equally engaged and involved with wider societal actors. Welcome all to the podcast, CRISPR-Cas, Building Bridges Between Science and Society, a podcast production from Wageningen University and Research, in which we dive deeper into the intriguing world of CRISPR-Cas. My name is Monica Lem. I am a journalist and your host and interviewer. I will talk to scientists from Wageningen University to learn more about new genomic techniques, with CRISPR-Cas being one of the best-known technologies. This technique allows scientists to precisely modify the DNA of living organisms. It can help plants and crops become resistant to a variety of diseases. Good for crops, but also for feeding the world's growing population in times of climate change. However, counter-arguments can also be heard. Opponents speak mainly of ethical, social and economic concerns. Do the risks outweigh the possibilities? How do scientists at Wageningen University themselves view these techniques? You can hear it in this podcast. I'm Richard Harrison. I'm Managing Director of the Plant Sciences Group at Wageningen. And prior to that, I was a director at a research institute in the UK called NIAB. Um, and there I also uh, led a research group um, focusing on uh, genetic improvement. My name is Nikita Sajiv. I am a postdoctoral researcher here at Wageningen University. And uh, my own research topic deals with uh, optimizing seed germination so that we can have more resilient seeds for the future. But uh, on the side, I've also been very active in engaging with different stakeholders about the dialogue around new genomic techniques. My name is Phil McNaughton. I'm a personal professor in the Knowledge, Technology and Innovation Group. I'm a social scientist. And for quite a long time, I've been very interested in public responses to agricultural biotechnologies, including gene editing and genetically modified crops and foods, and in the governance implications of those. So we are here today to discuss new genomic techniques, such as CRISPR-Cas. But these techniques are usually a discussion among scientists and politicians. Most of the general citizens are not part of these conversations, and that is also the reason why this podcast is called To Build a Bridge Between Science and Society. Why do you think it is important that we are doing this podcast today? I, I think it's important because these techniques uh, are likely to have a big impact on our future agriculture and food. A lot of the techniques have been developed in universities. For me, it's very important that we have broad societal engagement we have some democratic accountability. And so I'm delighted that we're using this podcast to think about the relationship broadly between science and society in relation to these techniques. Thank you, Phil. Um, so on the LinkedIn page of the Wageningen Plant Research, people were able to submit some questions about new genomic techniques such as CRISPR-Cas. Richard, Nikita and Phil, you will answer some of these questions today. Could any of you explain how CRISPR-Cas works? I can have a stab. If Go you ahead. Want, Nikita, yeah. yeah. Um, so, I mean, CRISPR, CRISPR-Cas isn't just one thing. So it's, it's lots of different techniques. That's the first thing to say. 
Um, and one of the, I think one of the key things is that it's, um, it's more precise than previous methods that we've had. So for many years, um, we've been able to either harness natural mutation in genomes um, that, that, that occurs in the gene pool of a, of a crop that we're, or a plant that we're interested in. Um, but what CRISPR uh, allows you to do is to change very precisely bits of the genome um, based upon um, a system which originally um, came from archaea, which is a prokaryote, so it's a, a, a single-celled organism, and it actually used it for its immune system, so taking bits of invading pathogens and putting it into its genome so it could, when it was infected by a, a new, um, you know, a new uh, disease that it would, if it had been infected before, it'd be able to activate its, its immune system a bit faster. So that's where it comes from. Um, and the way that it does that um, is that it has a couple of components. It has a, a protein um, that, um, th that binds to um, also an another component, an RNA, which then homes um, the, the protein to a specific part of the genome. And then in CRISPR-Cas9, all the other technologies that have been developed, really, the the innovation is that you can either make a small cut in the genome, a nick or a cut, and um, direct the cell itself to repair um, in a particular way. So either to insert DNA, to delete DNA, or to, um, through the repair process, um, introduce new mutations. So that's the sort of the, the precision at which you can do that is something that before we've never been able to do. So although we've been able to introduce mutations, we haven't been able to introduce them with any precision. So, Okay, thank you. Yeah, I think you explained it very well. Yeah, so let's move on to the first LinkedIn question. This person wrote, how are CRISPR-developed crops different from crops developed by GMO? Um, so please help me out here. Uh, what is the definition of a GMO? Well, um, a GMO uh, stands for genetically modified organism. And um, traditionally speaking, uh, these are modifications made by human interventions. And if you use a technology or a technique to modify the genome of a living organism, then they are called GMOs. Thank you for explaining that, Nikita. Um, so let's go back to the prior question. So could any of you try to explain what the difference is between new genomic techniques, such as CRISPR, and conventional GMOs, according to the proposed new regulation from the European Commission. A, a GMO in the, in the definition of the EU definition um, is, uh, and I don't have the exact text to hand, but, you know, to a first approximation, it's about um, insertion or deletion um, of foreign in inverted commas <laughs> DNA so it's um, or, or, or indeed the use of um, technologies such as agrobacterium to introduce um, foreign DNA uh, and that that effectively means under the legislation as it stands now um, insertion of um, or indeed removal of anything from an organism um, using um, these technologies, and they're, they're listed in the in the definition of, of GMOs, um, would constitute a genetically modified organism. The change or the proposed change in the legislation is such that um, regardless of the method that's used, there is now a definition about what constitutes um, a GMO 
um, as as um, as opposed to something created using um, a new breeding technique such as CRISPR-Cas. And that distinction is that um, some of the changes, and maybe we can get into this later about exactly what type of changes, but those changes already exist in the breeder's gene pool. So that's that they could access them already or that the changes are effectively, and these are my words, not, not the words in the, um, in, in the new EU document or the EC document, but the, that they are um, indistinguishable from that that could have been created by nature. So if you were to give somebody a genome and say, find me the, the, the bit that you've either removed or put in, they would find it very hard to do so because it's within the bounds of what can happen in normal, you know, regular evolutionary processes of mutation and recombination and shuffling of genes and things like that. So I would say that the definition of GMO as as is now is a little bit different to um, how the definition of GMO will be um, potentially in the, in the yeah, future. Right. And that's just in the EU. Let's move on to the next question. Um, how is Wageningen University involved in the development of new genomic techniques? Um, many people in Wageningen are using new breeding technologies to try and validate gene function, but also to demonstrate um, how, you know, with approaches such as stretching into the gene pool that breeders have and making making edits in particular genes, either to um, confer disease resistance or to remove a gene in order to reduce uh, susceptibility to a disease, a so-called susceptibility factor. Um, you can make more disease-resistant crops, but there's a whole host of other applications that people are, are doing here in, in potato and, and, and other crops, and as well as, of course, on the discovery side to understand exactly how genes and, and other elements function in the genome. Yeah, thank you. Um... We're discussing new genomic techniques, but there's also a big debate on these techniques. Uh, some people are in favor of using CRISPR techniques, as it helps plants or crops become resistant against diseases, for instance. And then there's also a critical group, because they are worried that the DNA of a plant might change. So my question to you is, what is the role of Wageningen University within these discussions? Mm, interesting. I think I would say our main um, ambition would be to provide trusted knowledge in order that others can make decisions. So, you know, we can present scenarios, evidence, we can highlight where there are conflicts between different groups and different ways of thinking. And, you know, we can be a, a forum for, for both knowledge and dialogue. So that that's, you know, in a, in a short Synopsis, that's what I think we can do for the debate, you know, and, and, and make sure that everything that we're speaking about comes from a firm evidence base. Yeah, Phil and Nikita, do you agree with Richard? The way I see it's the key role of the, of the university or, or were is to be an honest broker. And I think it's important because even when we feel very impassioned about particular techniques or technologies, it's important not to cross the line to become an advocate or to lobby. And there was a recent documentary which suggested that perhaps that line on some occasions may have been crossed. So I think it's important to have an ongoing conversation as to what it means to be an honest broker. And part of that is to make sure that there is a kind of a symmetry of involvement 
So just as we become very involved in with with corporates and, and industry, we should at the same time become equally engaged and involved with wider societal actors. Phil, I'm curious. I, you know, I it's sort of how can I put this? We I, I fully, fully agree that we should not lobby on behalf of a particular interest, be that a corporate or a, mm. or any any single other position. So, you know, this this idea of an honest broker, I think, is very important. And maybe it's just a semantic discussion, but, you know, the, the, the right to lobby is enshrined in most democratic processes. It's in the um, European constitution. It's in most written constitutions. You know, and, and lobbying there just means getting your point across, you know, being able to make representations, to present evidence to, you know, do you think, and this is maybe just a tangential point, but do you think the word lobby has sort of been taken by some to mean a, a more narrow definition of the word lobbying? Or, or do you feel that actually that as an organisation we shouldn't do anything close to approaching any kind of lobbying? And no, do you think it's just semantics? No, that's a really nice point. I mean, I think, I mean, the, the first, the easy answer is we need to be transparent. So there used to be full transparency. So that's a, an easy answer. But I do think there's a conversation as to you know, what might be the differences between doing something in the public interest or for a private interest. Yeah, yeah and, and and I think that that's the really important point. Yeah. Being gene-edited crops and foods could make a huge, you know, huge set of, 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 of new possibilities for food security, or it could be used to feed our kind of short-term desires for you know, even nicer looking tomatoes or whatever else. So so I think, you know, and this goes back to your point about the need to think about impact in, in a more complex and nuanced way. So what, and, and that's really interesting for us as scientists, because our responsibility doesn't end in the lab, it goes into the world, but then how we follow our innovations into the world and what the impacts of those are become really, really important kind of questions. So, what kind of world are our innovations contributing towards? Is this a world that we endorse? What kind of values are premised upon that? Um, how can we open up a discussion about that? So, so the, these to me are the really interesting yeah. sort of questions. Fully agree so. with you. Yeah. yeah, I would like to continue with this topic for a moment. Um, so I just mentioned that some people are critical or hesitant about using CRISPR techniques. Um, and then there was also a LinkedIn question regarding that. And that person asked, some people have concerns when it comes to consuming the food. Would a consumer in the future still be able to choose to eat food that is not made from new genomic techniques? And will that be displayed on food labels, for example? I, um, I think if the, you know, sort of a succinct answer um, is under the um, proposed um, path for the um, that the Euro Com European Commission have laid out because NGTs will not be part of um, organic. Um, effective if you buy organic, you will also be buying non-NGT. That's just a sort of a, 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 a simple answer. One thing I would say that's underneath this question that maybe we need to think about is, well, what is it that we're you know actually doing with new breeding technologies? And I. I um, referenced it earlier in the discussion, um, the way that it's defined at the moment fundamentally 
you can't really tell the difference between something that a mutation that's occurred naturally and you know all mutations the whole mutational space of an organism is always being explored by um, evolution and so so many different things are possible and it's just a question of finding it and so if any change introduced by a new breeding technology is indistinguishable from that that can be produced by nature then why would we need to um, have a um, a system that at the point of consumption distinguishes between that and something that has been produced um, from effectively from random chance in nature so I go back to that that sort of that fundamental if you can't distinguish it from something that's happened in nature why would you need um, to um, really mark it out as different from having occurred in nature yeah, Richard, this, I mean, you, you've given a very, you know, uh, coherent response uh, from a particular kind of frame or perspective. And there's totally, you know, there's, there's lots of integrity within that. But just one thing to, to mention is we actually, uh, we've just completed some qualitative research using focus group, which we ask citizens, Dutch citizens in this case, precisely that question. And uh, because for us, whether these things should be seen as equivalent or not is a kind of empirical question. So, and when we do that, and this, you know, this has been confirmed by other studies, that most citizens actually see there to be a difference in kind and quite an important difference in kind. And so, and and I think so. So, labelling is universally endorsed by all the citizens we we spoke to. Now, that might raise uh, technical difficulties, uh, which I I kind of understand. But uh, what what was of interest in in relation to what came up through the research was the, you know, the the kind of commonality across all the viewpoints that labeling should be seen as something that's a, a desired thing and I, I mean that's a that's a really interesting perspective because it's it, it reflects i guess you know what on um on I, I, and, and maybe we talk more about the research but on the perception of you know an individual do you think there should be you know a label on this if that happens if you ask the question without any prior um discussion or you know yeah. a, a program of really um, you know, informing more broadly um, about the way that plant breeding is done, the way that natural mutations occur, uh, and so on, you know, and, and the methods that are already used, um, then I can imagine that you might un- end up with an answer, well, yeah, yeah, actually, well, I'm not sure. Yeah, I think there should be a label, you know, because it's a sort of, um, you know, it it's, fr- again, framed in such a way that it seems logical that you would want to, at least just for a precautionary kind of um, approach, take that take that line. So I can understand why somebody would say it, but in the course of that research, do you spend time with those individuals and go through, you know, the the real um, the sort of the, the way that plant breeding works, the way that these genomic technologies fit into the broader picture? Because I wonder. Um, if you did that, would you get the same answer? Well, luckily, Richard, we did. So, so these the, we, we only approached the question of labelling after 
90 minutes of deep, deliberative discussions which had gone beforehand about food, the food systems, uh, breeding, different kinds of breeding, GMOs, gene editing. Is that enough? Threads. Is 90 minutes enough? I mean, it, it's, it's quite a lot in terms of the technique that we have as to how advanced a discussion so I, I, I welcome you to engage with our re- research, Richard. But what and but what what's of key interest there is the reason why people want labelling is they are already incredibly ambivalent about the food system yeah, generally. That's very interesting, isn't it? And yeah. and and so this is why mm. you know, and this is what happened with GMOs. It's a kind of a tipping point. Um, you know, and then you 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 wrap in Monsanto and transgression and unknowns, whatever yeah. else. So the fact that there are deep, you know, questions and ambivalence about the role of advanced technology on this, and to be honest, a lot of mistrust in the actors involved, and particularly mm-hmm. the corporate actors, that then provides the background settings. Yeah, well, we call that uh, a kind of epistemological pessimism. So these background factors give you the the reasons why you are likely to develop very pessimistic yeah. uh, but views of that. Uh, but that's a fascinating that's fascinating because what that means is that you're not actually evaluating on the merits or demerits of a particular technology. You're no. evaluating on everything that's gone before and all of the things that have happened and the way that the world is structured and you know why might you know why it's so expensive now to buy food and so on and so forth. And so it's... I, uh, yeah, but, but Richard, welcome to the real world. Yeah. yeah. You know, I, I, welcome to... I mean, like, you you, you yeah. might hope... I mean, this, again, is one of the problems particularly plant scientists get yeah. themselves into yeah. uh, because they might like to bracket their technology mm. and say it's deeply unfair, we have all this contextual societal background. We're, but this is the world we live in. Yeah. And and so that that's the... end. But I'll let Nikita get it. Oh. <laughs> No, I, I just wanted to add that uh, gr- going back to the question, I think according to the new proposal, indeed, everything that can be in the breeder's gene pool and cannot be distinguished from a conventionally bred plant will actually not be labeled finally. Uh, it will be labeled on the seeds. So the, growers, yeah, so the growers can decide if they want to buy an NGD plant or not. But the physical final product, according to the new regulation proposal, will not be labeled. And um, organics, as uh, Richard mentioned, will also uh, organic producers cannot use NGD plants. I personally think that might be a bit of a pity because it also takes away freedom of choice from organic farmers who are open to using these seeds, and there are some of them. Uh, but that is just something that is uh, how it is. That's how the world works. Uh, that's how we have to uh, uh, live in a society. So that's that's fine. But I also understand that people want to have um, a freedom to always choose what they're eating. And that is why they want this physical label on the final product, even though scientifically and and based on logic, it, it might not make perfect sense. However, I don't think we are uh, now, by not having a label, reducing transparency because there's still a public register where you can, if you really care about where your food comes from, you can still know where it comes from. But the problem, I think, that would hinder consumers from adopting it if there is a physical label is because of all this backlog of emotion and all of the backlog of past 
bad experiences that people have had with with this whole thing. So it's going to take a time to repair the trauma that has happened for the last decades. And that's 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 something that we have to do in time with conversation, with empathy, with respect. And although I'm a scientist and I'm very enthusiastic about these techniques, I think what helps to also talk about are the little bit of cons that we do see in these technologies. A lot of people just want their concerns to be addressed and to be validated in some way. Even if they are tiny, it's important to kind of address them. Yeah, there are also some concerns from the bio sector, for instance. Um, maybe you guys can explain it better, but I understood that they are worried that the people who profit from CRISPR-developed techniques are not the small farmers, but the big businesses. And also when it comes to patents on CRISPR, um, that mainly the larger businesses will buy them. Um, so what are your thoughts on these concerns? If you look at the current patents which are, are happening on, on gene-edited fusion crops, you could see, well, who's taking out the patents? It's the large multinationals by and large. You know, it's um, uh, Well, the, the, the patents for CRISPR, I think, um, are held by three universities or, or two universities and an individual. So you have University of California, I think... Um, Broad Institute. Yeah, uh, yeah, Broad. Um, Vienna, I think, has one. And Emmanuel Charpentier herself holds patents. Yeah. So they're not big, big ag. No, but but that that then is the question. We hold patents, of course. And we've given some of ours away. Yeah. Yeah. But, but, but that's the question as to then what is our responsibility in relation to that, including our relation to different actors, to help ensure that the technique is going to be used for the common good. And I think that's where our responsibility is, because actually compared to GMOs, as I understand it, a lot more of the research is being done in public universities. Yeah, indeed. Small businesses, uh, startups, universities could have a much broader role to play. And, and there, I think it is crucial that we have the right discussion. Yes, uh, Richard, thank you. You just mentioned to having the right discussion. Nikita, I have a question for you regarding this. Involving society in scientific discussions is very close to your heart. Uh, in fact, you have established a platform for having these kinds of discussions. Um, first of all, could you tell us a bit more about why you felt the need to involve society into scientific discussions? Thanks for that question. Yeah, so it was back in 2018 where a few colleagues and me together, we felt this really big need to have a bigger dialogue and also there are scientists and policymakers involved, but we are never sort of represented, I think. So we thought, let's try to make a platform where we can engage in these kind of discussions and try to have a voice. Where I think it is so important because we have such complex grand societal challenges and science has the potential to come up with some innovative solutions for it. It has a part to play to solve those problems. But that's just one side of it. To actually make it work in society is a completely different discussion to have. I've talked to policymakers and I feel I kind of understand them a bit because they said, I can make any regulation I want, but it needs to work in society. It needs to be accepted in society. It needs to be holistically also possible. Not only does it have to be science-based, but it needs to also work in practice. And I think if we engage and interact with people from an early stage, and that's what we we do 
we we are engaging more and more with people directly, not even representatives of people, because you never know. People are so diverse. Everyone has such a different opinion that it's better to just go out there, share your research and also learn what people think about your research and what are their concerns. I think if we did this more that we shared and listened with respect and empathy, people would be more perceptive and more open and more trusting when there is a new technology in the future. Because now it just comes out of nowhere sometimes and said, oh, we have to use this or we don't have to use this. But I think if people are taken along in the process of how scientists do research, what are we doing? Why are we doing it? Not necessarily involved in the actual research themselves, but sharing that journey will help the environment be more receptive to innovations that can actually move us towards a more sustainable society together. And the scientists can also learn what are the barriers in getting science into the society. So we started this whole thing that we can come up with more holistic solutions together. I'm very curious, is it difficult to involve the public in scientific discussions? No. So that's, I, I mean, I, I feel that this is really my personal opinion. So I cannot say that this is for every person out there. But whenever I have engaged with people who have diverse and very different opinions from me, It has been a great conversation. It it really comes down to value-based messaging. Where can you connect with the person you're talking to? Because you all want the same thing. But the ways to achieve that target might be different. I have had extremely nice conversations in a way that I can, we might not agree in the end of the discussion, but we have learned something new and maybe we have challenged our own perceptions in that process. And the way we do it, let it be Uh, for example, going and pitching your science in FameLab or doing a pint of science event or with GeneSpart also hosts a lot of dialogue sessions. You just directly interact with people who are just open to learn, but also feel comfortable enough to critique. And I think that's very important to do more and more so that it will become easier to come up with more holistic solutions in the future. Yeah, Richard and Phil, um, would you agree with Nikita that it's very important to involve the public into these kinds of debates? Yeah, I mean, that's my bread and butter. So, <laughs> so of course I do. <laughs> but but I, I mean, I, I think it's important because not least from a democratic perspective, if these innovations are kind of creating future worlds, then how do we involve citizens and publics at an early stage. I, I do think, though, it's methodologically quite complex as to how we do this. And so that's something which we've been doing for, you know, about 25 years or so. We've been developing methodologies which are aimed at trying to create what we call an endogenous, a bottom-up understanding of what the issues are from the perspective of citizens themselves rather than kind of, you know, imposing our own versions on them. One way we do this is we try to, first of all, look at the context in which people are going to develop their own responses. So in this case, it's about food and technology and food systems and such like. But then we expose people to the multiple ways in which the issue has been framed uh, and and each of which we say is equally valid. So there are scientific, there are regulatory frames, there's NGO frames, there are other sort of hidden frames. And we get people to talk about all these frames and through that to develop their own perspectives as to what they see as the critical issues. So so that's a, a particular kind of exploratory methodology for 
one way of kind of helping both understand issues in the making and what the politics, what the appropriate politics might be in relation to those as well. Yeah, I think we have had great discussion so far. Um, now I would like to go to the final LinkedIn question, if that's okay with all of you. Um, this person would like to know, how beneficial is the technology to small uh, holder farmers who are not able to buy the seeds every time? Yeah, so so this is a great question. And I think this is a, a lot of some of the confusions where we think just because the technology could be beneficial to a group doesn't mean that it necessarily will be. And it could be beneficial to small, but, but what then needs to be in place such that it will be beneficial rather than the same old act as benefiting us as what happens? People are incredibly untrusting that this will happen on its own accord, that we can just leave it to the market. So I think then this is precisely, I think we all agree. So what can we do to make sure that the technology is developed for smallholder farmers. And there's been some lovely research as to what it could mean, let's say, for African farmers and how we could include farmers, how we can co-design initiatives so we're not creating, we're not ourselves doing, you know, creating innovations which we believe will benefit smallholder farmers, but how can we involve them earlier on? And again, I think that's a, a wonderful site of innovation where we, we can develop ways to do this together. How about you, Richards? I think there are many other things that could benefit smallholder farmers first. So, you know, just just the general um, improvement of um, locally adapted varieties and things like that through even simple breeding approaches could go a long way to improving um, on-farm yields for smallholders. So I would say maybe the you know, the key is to focus on getting the fundamentals right first, you know, and as you develop, then, you know, of course, technology should be available and they shouldn't be overly impeded by, you know, the, the system in which smallholders are operating. But I would say there's a long, there's many, many other better things that could be done first. But Do you also think better things could be done first, uh, Nikita? I think CRISPR-Cas is not the uh, golden weapon. As I don't think scientists claim that anymore, but if they do, I'm sorry about that. But it's, it is just one of the very, very nice tools that we have that could help a lot. And, and I think there should still be more research. When I talk to people, I think they're very receptive when I talk about the studies that are still being done to improve the technology. They're very receptive when I talk about the studies that are done on off-target effects, because there are off-targets. Very few, but there are. By talking about this balance of always talking about the benefits together with the possible, hypothetical or not, cons of the technology is also very important. And I think that, uh, yeah, we should really prioritize what are our goals by using this NZTs uh, and these technologies for the betterment as a whole, even though there are some flaws. Yes, yeah, so that was the final question. Um, as we wrap up, I would like to thank Richard Harrison Nikita Sajif and Phil McNaughton for joining me in the studio today to share their knowledge on new genomic techniques. And with that being said, I would like to thank you all for listening to the podcast CRISPRcast, building bridges between science and society. If you are curious to learn more about CRISPRcast, then you can also take a look at the Dutch episode of this podcast. In that episode, I will talk to scientists Marleen Riemens, Bernice Bovenkerk and John van der Oost. See you then!
You've been listening to the Wageningen University and Research Podcast. Check out all of our podcasts in your favorite podcast app.